0: Well, welcome back to the Powell Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Powell Butte Christian Church in beautiful, beautiful central Oregon. We're located right between Prineville and Redmond. Prineville to our east, Redmond to our west. If you're ever in our neck of the woods, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for one of our uh, services on the weekend. You could just go to our website, palbutechurch.com and find out uh, when and, and where. Anyway, so so welcome back. You know, uh, we are in the middle of March Madness. I love uh, basketball. I love college basketball. I, I've loved the tournament for so many years now. I'm, I'm lucky because I met a gal and married a gal who also enjoys it. So uh, and, and we got married in March. And so for the last several years, we've been able to go and on our anniversary, just watch basketball together. It's pretty romantic, I guess you'd say. Anyways, there's a defensive play in basketball that's uh, really exciting. It's called the full court press. You don't see it a lot. They don't utilize it a lot, but they do utilize it at the end of the half and the end of the game, typically. Uh, Things get tight and lots of intensity because one team that is trying to prevent the other team from scoring, uh, doesn't just wait for the basketball to come down into the, the, the half court. Uh, they are on the other team like glue, and they are full court pressing them. Um, and it's so difficult for the uh, team with the ball to actually get it down to their, to their hoop, to their basket, and, and, to, to, and to score. And there's a good chance of giving up their possession, um, letting the other team score, um, uh, throwing it out of bounds, making bad decisions. Anyways, this morning, we're going to look at a place where you could say that Jesus was facing a full court press. It all happens in a place that you've most likely heard of if you know the story of the passion, uh, Jesus's last week going to the cross. It's It all happens in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is significant to those who follow Jesus because it's here where the final battle was fought for our very souls. It's here in the Garden of Gethsemane that the the true last temptation of Christ takes place. It's here where our spiritual fate is decided. And it seems very appropriate. I mean, it was in the Garden of Eden where sin brought us to the, uh, the reality of spiritual death. So it would be good for in the garden, another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, for there to be a way uh, to spiritual life. You see, in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, the first Adam failed to obey God's will, and that brought death into this world. It's in this second garden that we're looking at, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, who is called in Scripture the second Adam, succeeded in his obedience to the will of God. Whereas Adam fled and ran and hid from God, Jesus submitted to the Father, saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we begin this morning with verses 39 through 42 of Luke chapter 22. So if you'll take your Bibles, go to Luke 22, starting in verse 39, we read this. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, just next to a valley called the Kidron Valley, which separates the old city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, is this Garden of Gethsemane. And this seems to be one of Jesus's favorite places to go. I mean, Luke calls it the place, like like everybody knows. Hey, this is where we hang out. We go to the place. And it's in the place, this very place where Jesus takes time to connect with his father in a very intimate way. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus actually leaves eight of his followers there at the entrance to the garden and he leads his inner three, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further. But then he leaves them there and goes himself a little bit farther so he could bear his soul to the Father alone in prayer. Now, with what's going to happen to him the very next day, you can can know for certain that Jesus is under a great strain. We see physical evidence of the stress that he is under here in Luke's gospel. And what perfect timing— What a perfect location for all of that to happen at a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is is actually the English translation of a, a Hebrew term that is made up of two Hebrew words. The Hebrew name for this place is Gat Shamanim, Gat Shamanim. It comes from two Hebrew words, Gat meaning the press and Shamanim meaning olives. So what we're talking about is something much more than just a first century olive garden. Okay, this is an olive press, a place where olives were harvested and the oil from those olives would be extracted between these two heavy press stones that would crush not just the body of the olive, but the very pit of the olive itself, where, by the way, it's in the pit that the oil is actually where it resides. And so the pits need to be crushed as well so that you can get the olive oil. They would be crushed, which is very interesting because it sounds an awful lot like an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah looking ahead at a prophecy of the Messiah said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see that phrase there, crushed for our iniquities. Isn't it amazing that it is in this garden, this place of struggle and and final temptation of our Lord, this place called the olive presses, where Jesus really pours out his will to bring about what is most needed for sinful mankind. The sins of the world are going to be laid upon him on the cross the very next day, but it's here in the olive presses that Jesus accepts his destiny, and he, by being crushed, wins the battle for you and me. Now, though the conversation with his father would drag on for over an hour, as we read of in the other gospel accounts, Jesus' prayer was very simple, Father, if you are willing, Take this cup away from me. Now, for those who have the gall to say that there are other ways to get to heaven, other ways to be made right with God, I think those people have to deal with this one major issue. Because if there was another way, then Jesus would not have had to go to the cross at all. God would have said, oh, no, you you don't have to go. We'll, We'll do it another way. Here he's asking God, is there another way for people to be forgiven, to be made right with you? Do I have to do this? And obviously, the answer came from God, no, uh, there is no other way. Yes, you do have to do this. If there were another way to be made right with God, then the cross would be meaningless and unnecessary. Jesus would have died in vain. I don't want to tell him that. And by the way, that's not what the Bible tells us. Remember, we are told in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So when it comes to the forgiveness of your sin, if that requires the shedding of blood, let me ask you this, whose blood would you rather have shed to cover up that sin, your own or Jesus's, who is the perfect spotless lamb of God? So Jesus there in the garden asks, can we do this another way? And yet, even though he's expressing a desire to possibly avoid that cross, it's significant The conclusion that he comes to, nevertheless, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Now, there are some preachers that you might know out there who teach that God is concerned about our comfort and wants to give us whatever we ask for, right? Just name it and claim it. They teach this heresy that, that, uh, that teaches that God is more concerned with our comfort than he is in our character. That he just wants to give us whatever we, we we want. Well, I mean, Jesus is saying, this is what I want. I don't want to go to the cross. So if God is a name it and claim it God, he would have just done what Jesus wanted, right? So why does Jesus say, your will be done? Well, because he understands that <clears throat> God is more concerned with the bigger picture than he is of Jesus's comfort. You see, as as the second Adam, Jesus knew that by going to the cross, he would reverse the curse that had come through the first Adam's disobedience there in the Garden of Eden by being obedient to God and his will here in this Garden of Gethsemane. That's why he says, your will be done. And so instead of naming it and claiming it, you could say that Jesus requested it, but rested in it. In other words, Yes, he had a a will, he had a desire, he had his druthers, but he brought his will to the Lord. And before his body would be hung on a cross and would be submitted to death, Jesus' will was first given up. His will was placed on the altar. And that's truly at the heart of what it would mean for you and I to pick up our cross daily to follow him. See, most of us will never have to die for what we believe in. Yes, there have been millions of Christ followers who have been slain because of their faith. And though the pressure in our world today is kind of mounting in in our present culture, it still would be pretty shocking if a good percentage of those who hear this message today uh, would be martyred for their faith living where they do. Uh, But for the disciples— Picking up their cross and following Jesus would eventually mean their physical deaths for most of them. Now, for us, though it may not mean our physical death, it still means something significant. You see, it means actually the death of our will, which sometimes I think might even be harder to do, to stay living here on earth and have to give up our will to what God wants of us. To, to see the the agendas that we have for our life be put to death so that God's will, expressed through God's word, can be done in God's people. So here's Jesus saying, I, I would love for this to happen, but not as I will, but you will. And he says, if you are willing, you can take this cup from me. Well, what is that cup that Jesus is mentioning? Well, it's a metaphor Yes, that that will include the trial that he's going to undergo. Drinking the cup of suffering is a, is a metaphor in the Bible, but it's also more than just a cup of suffering. It's a cup of God's wrath, something that we don't like to talk about because God is love, but God is also just. And wrath is a term that is full of righteousness and justice. Jeremiah chapter 25 Verses 15 through 16 tell us, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And they will drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword, that that, that means of punishment, because of the sword that I am sending among them. Psalm 75 verses 7 and 8 says, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And then in Revelation 14 we read that a third angel followed them, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath pulled full, full strength into the cup of his anger. So the, the, the cup isn't just a, a little trial that Jesus is going to go through when he went to the cross. Well, we understand that Jesus's cross to bear is not a mere inconvenience. But the main point wasn't just that he was going to die there on Calvary. More importantly. By Jesus's willingness to submit to the will of God, Jesus was accepting the cup of God's full wrath that you and I deserved, that mankind deserved, this justified anger that, at the rebellious nature of sin, a justified anger that wants to make things right. This is what Isaiah meant when he said that the Messiah was going to be crushed for our iniquities. It wasn't just a death on a cross. It was a death on a cross bearing the weight of the sin of the world and the wrath of God poured out on him. So now do you understand the struggle in the olive presses there in the Garden of Gethsemane? The intensity that we read? Let me continue. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven. This is verse 43 an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers that includes the two facts that we just read. First of all, Luke mentions angels from heaven who come and provide strength, the strength that Jesus needed to go through with this trial. It was as if God had answered jesus's question uh, the question being is there another way it seems as if god answered no there is no other way but my son as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death you need not fear for i am with you my rod and my staff will comfort you god sent his angels down to give jesus the strength to go through the press And though it may seem to Jesus that the Father had abandoned him, in fact, on the cross, he will actually quote Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even as he quotes that, it's amazing that he chooses that psalm to quote, because in that psalm, if you continue to read after, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll see the reality that God did not forsake his son. That's in verse 24 of Psalm 22. He did not forsake his son because his son was being obedient. Though, though the, the cup of wrath was poured out, God did not abandon him. The cross was the Father's plan. And where God calls, God will always provide the strength to actually walk through even the most seemingly impossible of trials. So, that's fact number one that we get from Luke's gospel. The second fact uh, makes sense because Luke was a medical doctor. Uh, So, interestingly, this is the only gospel where we see Jesus sweating drops of blood. Now, some people don't understand that. A medical doctor would. In medical In medicine journals, you will find what can happen to a person in a deep state of distress. When a person has endured intense pressure and is emotionally drained, it's possible that the tiny capillaries that feed into the sweat glands burst, and blood then pours into and then through the sweat glands. So literally what happens is that bloody sweat is coming out of your pores. It's crazy how intense Jesus must have felt at the thought of the agony that he would endure in obedience to the Father's will. So intense that it would affect him physically like that. Now, <clears throat> during this full court press, where are the disciples? We we continue to, to read, starting in verse 45, when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples. And where are they? He found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, I get it. I know how tempting it is to, to go hard on these guys, right? Man, we can look back and criticize them for falling asleep instead of praying for that hour plus. But you know, I have found an intriguing phenomenon that, that my mother a long time ago invited me as a young kid to actually experience. You see, I I would wake up a lot in the middle of the night and having to go to the bathroom or or whatever. But as soon as I would get up, my brain would immediately snap awake, right? And and it would be almost impossible for me to go back to sleep because my my brain clicked on and would not shut back off. And and I would try to get in bed with mom and dad and they would say, that's not appropriate. And, And so mom would say, listen, Trey, when you can't sleep, either read the Bible or start to pray. Now, I thought, what What are you saying that reading the Bible and praying are boring? No, that's not what she was saying. She said, listen, if you can't sleep, focus on talking to God or listening to God through his word and you'll fall asleep. And by the way, it worked. It worked. Why? Well, I don't really absolutely know, but I think of two possible reasons. Number one, it could be that when I talk to God, maybe maybe I was, even deep down where I didn't even know it, maybe I was anxious about something. And when I'm praying, maybe I am giving those problems and anxieties to God and and I begin to trust him. And then my anxieties might actually be alleviated because by trusting God, my mind is put now at ease. And then in that sense, my brain can get back to a relaxed state of mind and allow me to go back to sleep. Or, and this is my mom's theory, by the way, when one begins to pray, that's when the enemy goes on the alert because he doesn't want us to be talking with our Heavenly Father. He doesn't want us to be reading His Word. He knows the power that's in the the reading of God's Word and of prayer, and so it's possible at least according to my mom's theory, that when you engage in prayer or read God's word, the enemy does whatever he can do to keep you from doing that, even make you too tired to continue with those activities. And so, yes, as we read of in the other gospel accounts, the disciples, well, their spirit was willing, as Jesus said, but their flesh was weak. The flesh like our flesh. Their flesh was vulnerable to the influence of the spiritual war that happens behind the scenes of our life. You see, prayer and the study of God's word are so powerful. Those are our only offensive weapons mentioned in Ephesians as a part of our spiritual armor. And so, again, here's the theory. If the enemy gets the disciples distracted by their lack of physical stamina, I mean, their spirit was willing So we can't fault them for that. But if the enemy could use their weakness in their physical stamina, then they would be rendered ineffectual in this spiritual battle that was taking place in the olive presses. So Jesus then rouses them for their sake, by the way. He says, I want you to get up so that you may not enter into temptation, right? It's like, listen, boys, you're going to be attacked. So look alive. The time has come. Verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading the crowd, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The betrayer has now come using a symbol of friendship, a kiss, in his act of betrayal. How ironic! But it definitely displayed Judas's life, because here's one who shared so much with Jesus during his ministry years, looking like he was on his side, looking like he was a friend, a person who put up a good front, but now showing his true colors, turning his back on his Lord. And with him, he brings this crowd, which tells me that Judas really never understood who Jesus was, because really, what what did Jesus ever do? or teach to make Judas think that, oh boy, Jesus is going to put up a fight here. But apparently, again, it's not just Judas who misunderstood. Being taken now by surprise, and by the way, in one of those states that you're in when you suddenly get waken up from a deep sleep, (laughs) kind of disoriented, um, lashing out in in emotion, the disciples are now ready to rumble. Uh, They're not properly processing what they're doing. Verse 49 and 50 says, when those who were around Jesus saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them did. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Wow. So who was this horrible swordsman, one that, that, that can't aim very well? You know, it, John, the apostle, makes no bones in his gospel telling us who it was. It was Peter, he tells us. Peter had gotten one of the two swords that the disciples had brought with them. You can read of that back in verse 38. And Peter apparently was aiming to cut off somebody's head, but he missed badly. But I look at that and I say, you know, thank God he did miss. Because what Jesus was trying to establish didn't need to be defended through methods of human warfare. Okay. The apostle Paul tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So we really don't need a sword. Uh, We, we wrestle against principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's why the prayer was so important for them to pray that they would not fall into temptation. See in our modern world, we know how hypocritical it is for a religion such as Islam, for example, to have terrorism and violence be a part of the way that they live and the way they spread their message. Why would our faith be any different than their faith? Why would it be okay for us to use violence to convert people to our religion? Jesus warned us that we cannot be like those who would force their authority onto people. The Apostle Paul tells us that it's actually the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, not the fear of God. People shouldn't make a decision to follow Jesus because we bear a sword and we're forcing them into it. In fact, it's when the world wields the sword against God's people, when God's people stand in face... in in faith, facing the sword, that the gospel actually advances with more power than you could ever imagine. So Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away, verse 51, no more of this, he said. And then Jesus touches the ear of the high priest's servant and healed him. This is amazing, folks, because in the, the face of opposition, what is Jesus doing? Well, the same thing that he's doing throughout his ministry, taking broken people and fixing them, showing grace, demonstrating God's goodness. And the irony of this mob coming to him with clubs and swords is is pointed out very, very, uh I think, cynically almost by Jesus. If you look at verses 52 and 53, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour, and it is also the power of darkness. What disgrace the religious leaders have brought upon themselves in this act of violence. Jesus said, yep, this is your hour, folks. You know, you could have arrested me in broad daylight, but you didn't because you were afraid of losing your power amongst the people. But here you're emboldened because it's at night, it's in the darkness, and your power seems to grow in the darkness because it comes from the power of darkness. Once again, Jesus does not pull punches. So lastly, as as I wrap up the events of this night that we read of here in Luke chapter 22, there is a scene that we read of where Jesus's prediction of Peter's denial comes true. Verse 54, then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl Seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. Strike one. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. (laughs) Strike two. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Strike three. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's intriguing for me to see the humanity of those Jesus chooses to follow him. Peter is just the model here, but he personifies really all of the other disciples as well. But but as you're looking at all of this stuff here, you think back, and while Jesus was praying, what is Peter doing? Sleeping. While Jesus was surrendering to the will of the Father, Peter was resisting. And, and though Peter is putting on this air of confidence that he's going to be loyal to Jesus... He said, "I am willing to die with you rather than deny you." Here we see the humanity and the weakness of even the staunchest of believers. My point in mentioning all of this, and I mention it because you and I, we all have failed the Lord in some way, at some point, even though Peter fails. I want you to see what, what Jesus how Jesus responds, he's not offended. In fact, he had expected it. He had predicted it, right? It's interesting. I wonder. I wonder. And I'm amazed at how our sinful nature is really so predictable to an all knowing supreme being. He knows. He created us. He sees us. He knows what we struggle with. So Jesus says to Peter, Yes, you're going to fail. You're going to blow it, Peter. But Jesus also promises a restoration. He says, I'm praying for you, Peter. Yeah, you're going to fail, but I'm on your side. I know you're going to get back up. You're going to get back up, and I need you to do that because you're going to strengthen those other people who will fail as well. Jesus knew that he would blow it, but he also knew that he would be back, willing to be used by the Spirit again and again and again, just like he can use you and me, even after our most vile act of rebellion that we could ever imagine doing it's beautiful god's grace but peter won't see that beauty until later because in his guilt and shame he runs away to have what is known as an ugly cry now just a couple more things before we finish up next we see the treatment of jesus by the jewish leaders and their minions verse 63 now the men who were holding jesus in custody were mocking him As they beat him, and they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So they're mocking, they're they're beating, they're blindfolding, they're blaspheming. There would be no justice, by the way, at Jesus's trial. The entire thing is going to be a sham, worse than a sham, really. Completely illegal. Because no trial for capital offenses was supposed to happen at night. Nor could a trial happen on a Sabbath or during a festival, like what's happening in Jerusalem at this time, the Passover. And trials were supposed to be done in public, not tucked away in the house of the high priest. So it was highly illegal, totally unfair, a a horrible travesty of justice. But actually, it gets worse. When day came, the assemblies of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so Jesus is condemned to die. The Jewish leaders have passed sentence. And yet, frustratingly to them, they cannot legally carry out their so-called justice. No, Rome has not given them the power to put people to death. And so the stage now is set of the most horrendous act of mankind that could ever be imagined. Man is going to put God on trial and is going to kill him. And in all this, I want to point out that there is no excuse because Jesus told them plainly who he was, but either they chose not to believe that or they didn't care. Now, what's the point for us today is do we care? Do we care who Jesus really is, his true identity? You know, we we hear it preached that he is the son of God, that he is God come in, in, in the flesh. So then what is our response? There are three responses that we see here in this passage today. We can, like Judas, eventually turn against what Jesus stands for simply because we're not getting our way. Or we can be like the disciples who have good intentions to follow, but somehow we come up short in our commitment to actually do what he wants us to do and stand firm in our convictions. Or we can be like the Jewish leaders who hear plainly Jesus's claim to divine authority, but because we disagree with the agenda that God has set, we violently push Jesus away. If you're hearing this and you have never come to a decision as to what you're going to do with Jesus, I'd invite you to listen next week to see why it's so crucial that you make that decision. You see, that's what next week is going to be all about. That's what the crucifixion is all about. Jesus went to the cross to bring you back to God. And the decision was made in the garden there as he went through the crushing of the olive presses for you. That decision was made to win you back to God. And next week, I'm going to show how much you are loved and how much God wants you back into his family. Well, that's the message for today. Thank you, Lisa Welly, my executive producer, for getting these podcasts up and running. Thanks to uh, Steve Pittman for being our tech guru over here. And thank you for joining us each and every week. May God bless you and strengthen your faith as you seek to honor him in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, We'll see you next week.